The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve talking with you, and I'm going to be joined soon with director Sam Irvin to talk about The Bride of Frankenstein as we consider, as we consider, as we continue our James Whale retrospective series. We talk about the man, the work, and his legacy. And tonight we're going to talk about Bride of Frankenstein. And I'm also going to ask Sam when we get done talking about Bride about what does he think is part of James Whale's legacy with him and with the filmmaking community in case he's not able to participate in our round table at the end because he is a busy man doing a lot of different things. Sam, how are you doing today? Great, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. We're actually in the same room for once doing this. <laughs> We're here in uh, Pennsylvania, the Monster Bash Convention, and uh, I was like, we should do it now instead of on Zoom. <laughs> it, it works out great because we're doing this in October of 2021. So, I mean, what, you know, what better to talk about in <laughs> Halloween season than one of Wales' classics? Some people argue his greatest film. I mean, there's, there's a lot of contenders for it, you know, as to which one is his overall best. But, I mean, I think for a lot of James Whale fans, this is number one. Yes, sir, sir. You will get no argument from me. In fact, it's not only, I think, James Whale's best film. This is my favorite film of all time. And I am not kidding, man. I am, it's always been and it will always be. It's just, I mean, every single thing about this movie I absolutely adore. So, yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I let Sam know we were doing the retrospective, he said, Steve... I got Bride of Frankenstein. I don't care who I have to kill or what I have to do. And so it's going to be right. And I, and I know better than to take any idle threats. I just knew it's like, yes, Sam, it's yours. I wanted you to do it anyway. Cause I think if there's certain movies, I have to make sure they match up with certain people. And when they have that love and joy, but just before we get into Bride, you, you have something that just came out recently on Blu-ray. Yes, I'm so, so proud. Um, I directed a film called Elvira's Haunted Hills, the second Elvira movie, and it's the 20th anniversary this year, and it has just come out on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. It's loaded with extras, and it has a brand new introduction uh, starring Elvira and her red couch and that I co-wrote with her and co-directed, and uh it's just a little five minute little comedy sketch thing at the beginning, which we're really excited about. And she looks dynamite. I mean, it's just like, it looks like we could have shot it. I think people will think we shot it and put it on ice, you know, 20 years ago when we did the movie and she hasn't changed a day. I mean, it's incredible. So um, you got to pick that up. It's a, a beautiful, hard slip case and everything. And I also, to help celebrate it, I am, have printed up these photo cards of me and Elvira holding uh, a mock-up of the cover of the Blu-ray that we, and we shot this picture on the day we shot the introduction. And I printed those up. 
in just the right size that'll fit inside your Blu-ray case so you can pimp out your, your Blu-ray. And I'm giving those away and personally signing them to you for the low, low price of free. That's right, free. And I will send it to you anywhere in the world. I don't care where you live. It's my treat and it's my way of celebrating and thanking everybody for all their support on the film, which I'm just so excited is going to be um, back, you know, with, with fans who love it, but also introducing it to a whole new generation of fans. And for listeners wondering, I'm literally be buying my copy after we're done talking about Bride of Frankenstein because I went, I knew I was going to be seeing Sam this month, and I was like, I'm not going to order ahead of time. I'm just going to get it from Sam, the man. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And now I'll have I'll have mine signed right in front of me to be great, and it'll save him postage. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I can save on the postage. <laughs> Thank heaven. <laughs> yeah, well, you know those 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 pennies add up after a while. Yes, exactly. Ah, <laughs> uh, but Sam. You and I had a great interview for listeners that want to go back to. We had a nice short talk. Yeah, very brief. <laughs> very brief. About three hours plus brief. <laughs> and we covered that movie and a lot of other things. So if you want to get into a little more detail of the movie and, and Sam's career, please go back to the episode that came out earlier in 2021. And it's, it's a nice interview. Sam is full of knowledge and it's great <laughs> stories with Michael Caine, Kirk Douglas, Angie Dickinson. I mean, I could keep going on. It's, it's, it's Nancy Allen. The list is amazing. Besides Cassandra Peterson, the ageless wonder, as you brought up. I was going to bring that up myself. It's like, does she ever age? I don't know. Sam, <laughs> Sam knows her better than I do, and I think he just said she doesn't. No, she, she has a portrait in her attic. <laughs> Whatever works. I mean, that, that's, better works. Than, that's better than plastic surgery. It's yeah. a portrait. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But the main reason listeners are listening for this episode is because we're talking about James Whale, yes. Bride of Frankenstein. And um, we've done several episodes now in the retrospective. We've already had um, Frankenstein. We've already talked about Waterloo Bridge, Journey's End, The Invisible Man, The Old Dark House, and so on. And we're now getting into, like we said, arguably his number one film. Um, I'm, I'm going to save my thoughts to that until I get all the way through the 10, the 10 different movies I'm watching of his, but there are some close contenders so far that I've seen for this, and it's going to be an interesting, but everybody's, you know, opinion's different, and I'm not saying one's worse or better than the other. I know Sam would, but <laughs> <laughs> Sam, just before we talk about the movie, how did you, I know we talked, brought this up in the interview, but just to refresh people's memory, why is this your favorite film, and how did you come across this well, I first saw it on Shock Theater on TV when I was a kid. Um, you know, how all the universal classics were packaged by screen gems and, and syndicated around the country to local TV stations back in the late 50s and 60s. And I was born in 1956, so I must have seen this in the early 60s when I was about maybe four, five, six years old. And it just absolutely blew me away. And it was um, it was frightening, but it was also a movie that brought tears to my eyes several times. It was an emotional experience for me in and and I didn't even really realize at the time how deep that emotion was going to resonate throughout my entire life and i I've, I've seen the film countless times. I was even rewatching it again today in preparation for this. But I, um, 
it just really, really spoke to me. Now, I, uh, I, I am a gay man. I was, you know, closeted as I was young and, and into my teens and everything. I came out when I was 25. But um, the whole outsider theory, which everyone talks about, um, really spoke to me. I mean, I never felt like I fit in. I always felt like I was a freak of nature, quote unquote. Um, so I identified with the quote unquote monster who really isn't a monster. And um, the, the real villain of the movie is Dr. Frankenstein who abandoned his creature and in that abandonment is just unbelievably sad. And also, the, uh, you know, Dr. Pretorius is also a, a, a very, very delicious villain in and of himself. But the, the monster, quote unquote, is, you know, this, this freak of nature who didn't choose to be brought to life in this way and is misunderstood. I mean, the classic moments of that are, are when he befriends the blind hermit and suddenly, you know, the woodsmen come in and they completely misinterpret what's going on and, and, and end up, you know, it's, it, you know, it turns into a big disaster. But that was, you know, again, just the monster being caught up in a, in a really bad situation. Um, so anyway, all of that really, really spoke to me and I identified with it as an outsider. And when I say outsider, of course, I'm meaning anybody who has ever felt different. It doesn't, I'm not talking just gay. I'm talking about, you know, if you're just, you know, the last person to be picked for the, for the team and the game, the, you're ridiculed because you like monster movies or, you know, you're a geek like, like, like I certainly am. I totally um, fit into so many of those categories. And so, yeah, it just, it just spoke to me on a primal level, absolutely. And I just wanted to see it anytime it came on TV, I would try to rewatch it again. And, um, and just, I, I just can't get enough of it. I absolutely love it. Uh, I also feel that there is a lot of gay subtext in this movie. And that can be somewhat controversial depending on your point of view. Um, but I, I do, you know, feel that even if it was not consciously included in the film, it definitely had to be subconsciously, um, subconsciously sort of pervasively infiltrating this movie on every freaking level because First of all, James Whale was gay in real life. Colin Clive, who plays Dr. Frankenstein, was gay. Ernest Thesiger, who played Dr. Pretorius, was gay. Um, they're just, you know, the, the brain trust and it, it was just had a certain sensibility and a certain, you know, they were all outsiders. They had to understand the outsider theory. They just had to. And so it, it, it speaks in so many ways, um, and I and it just screamed out at me. And and the more that I saw it as I got older, it screamed out even more. And I agree with you. And the way I look at it as everybody comes in with different lenses, yes. different perspectives because of what their upbringing was like or what their experiences have been like. And 
I look at it is like we can look at any work of art. Ten of us could look at the work of art and come up with ten different opinions and Absolutely. not saying any one of them is right or wrong. Yeah, there's and, no right or wrong. And, and that's what I love about artistry. And this this film, this movie, is a cinematic work of art. And a lot of people can go into it and see so many different nuances. And that's what I think with great films, you know, where they can you can watch it again and again and you learn something new every time. Yeah. And and this film is a, is, is a perfect example of that. And there's many great films out there. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't think there's any such a thing as a perfect film. There might be a perfect film for you, that particular viewer. Yeah. But I mean, overall, I don't think there'll ever be a perfect film because again, so many of us have so many different experiences going into those films that somebody else might be like, well, this could have been perfect for me if it would have been for this or that. And that's, you know, that's fine. But yeah. I think this to me is a great film and always will be. And it, it's just the way James Whale directed it, the way he handled it, as I've seen with so many different works of his, the camera work that, and he's again working with a cinematographer that he's worked with before with John Meskel, um, The Invisible Man, and that kind of stuff. And The Invisible Man was just unbelievable with the cinematography. Yep. And when you have two creative types in sync working together, as you would know, what is it like when you get a when you get a, a cinematographer oh. as a director that you two are just seem to be on the same page? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just it's it's an incredible collaboration. And no, and the, I mean the look of Bride of Frankenstein is unbelievably fantastic, and the sets are so beautiful and so interesting, and and bring in the whole sort of German expressionistic stuff there you know there's some carryovers from the first frankenstein with the laboratory and all of that um but there are others uh, there are other sets that are just absolutely gorgeous and it's it's all just amazing and i um the cast oh my god the cast is so good i there it's hard to imagine other people in these roles but there were other people that they were considering for instance dr pretorius who I just can't imagine anybody doing a more a more incredible job than Ernest Thesiger. I mean, he just he just owns this character. But they originally wanted Claude Rains, and actually had offered him the part, but he was busy on some other other things. Can you imagine Claude Rains in that role? How different it would be. As great as Claude Rains is, and I'm sure he would have done an amazing take of it. And how about this one? Bella Lugosi that's who Universal wanted and uh, that would have taken it in a whole nother direction and you know but you know I just love Ernest Thesiger I just think he just does such an incredible job and it was great that Lugosi could be saved for Son of Frankenstein because I think Igor is I think that's his greatest performance even better than Dracula for me honestly so I'm really glad that Lugosi didn't do it and waited for the <laughs> for the part of Igor. Um, but at any rate, uh, yeah, Thesiger just just kills it, and um, I just love his entrance where he's knocking on the door on the stormy night, and Una or O'Connor, the maid, has to the, the housekeeper has to go and answer the door, and she's and she goes to announce him and. She tells uh, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, he's, he's a very queer looking gentleman. And 
there's a lot of controversy about the use of the word queer because back in those days it didn't necessarily automatically mean gay. Um, and back in that day, gay didn't even mean gay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but I did do some research on that, and I did find out that that in slang, especially in England, that the word queer had started becoming used um, kind of on the sly and, and was sort of an underground sort of thing, but it was being used to describe gay people and in addition to its regular usage. And so I am absolutely 100 thousand percent convinced that Ernest Thesiger being British at James Whale being British knew exactly what they were up to by using a word that could get by the censors that had double meaning very much double meaning much more so double meaning than nowadays because when you use the word queer nowadays it pretty much means gay mm -hmm. but back then it was just a subtle, very subtle um, sort of reference for those in the know, kind of a wink to those in the audience who might pick up on that. And I, I'm absolutely certain that that choice of word was very specific and very intentional. Um, and, you know, Ernest Sessinger plays the character very fey and very... Um, you know, very camp. And, he, you know, he, it, it just, I mean, when you look at other performances of Thesiger, I mean, that's who he was. I mean, he wasn't going to be able to stray that far from that type of characterization. But it was so perfect for this character. And he comes in the dead of night to take Dr. Frankenstein away from his bride. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, it just has all these kinds of humorous um, undercurrents that that just make me smile. And you know, yes, he wants to make a woman, but he never mentions or in any way that he wants this woman as a sexual uh, partner or anything like that. It's it's to create a bride for the creature, and uh, and what he wants this this female for is to you know help him with his insidious <laughs> goals of taking over the world and um which was explored even further in uh, a much later film called frankenstein the true story which was an intentional remake of frankenstein and bride of frankenstein and it had james mason playing this character in fact, this, in the original script for Frankenstein, The True Story, the character was called Dr. Pretorius in the script written by Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi. And it's very much based on this. And in Frankenstein, The True Story, he, they create Jane, the Jane Seymour creature. And, uh, but um, at any rate, and, and again, that character was definitely gay and presented that way in the film. Um, so... Uh, I consider Dr. Pretorius to be one of the first mainstream gay characters in cinema. And, and as he is talked about in that way in Vito Russo's The Celluloid Closet, which is a whole study of, of gays in cinema. And I think that it's a, a character that, um, you know, was very, very groundbreaking at that time. And 
and I I look upon that as as something that is you know really kind of a milestone. Um, he and I just and I love the scene and this is controversial too because some people hate it but the scene where he presents all of his little miniature um, characters that he's created in these little jars some people think it's just too over the top and just crazy and 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 I absolutely love it I mean as a kid I just thought it was the coolest thing to have created these little miniatures and um, and I just, I love that sequence. I just watched it again today and I'm just marvel at the special effects of it at the time. I mean, my God, it looks incredible. I don't see seams of anything. I mean, it's just, he lifts the, the little velvet um, things that sort of cover the jars and you can't tell there's an effect there. It's amazing to me. And uh they actually, if you look in the wide shot, there's actually a few more characters, at least one or two more. Um, Billy Barty is, is playing a baby in a high chair that doesn't actually get any real screen time. So they cut out, when he's describing each of them, they cut out at least one or two more of those. But in the wide shot, you get to see that there are some others. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff that got cut out of the film when, when they did test audiences. There were originally something like 20 some odd people that were killed by the monster in this movie, in the original version, and the censors went crazy and they cut it down to where I think he only kills 10 people. I mean, that's a, a major slice of the body count. And the running time is only 75 minutes. And there's at least, uh, it's been estimated that there's at least another 15 minutes of the movie that we have never seen and that footage has never been recovered. There are some stills the, of different things that were cut out. I mean, he, the, the creature kills the Burgermeister. He, uh, there's also a subplot of Carl played by Dwight Fry who played um, a similar character in the first movie. Uh, Fritz. Fritz. Fritz, thank you very much. Um, but he's killed in the first movie, so I guess we're supposed to believe that this is maybe his twin brother, his identical twin brother, <laughs> who's come to help <laughs> be the assistant at the laboratory. But he kills his, like, I think it's his aunt and uncle or something, and and does it in such a way to blame it on the cre on the monster so that he can get away with it. And uh, but that whole subplot was cut out. Um, and there are a number of other things that were that were cut, unfortunately, which I would love to see. One of the biggest things that was changed was that the studio decided they needed a little bit of a somewhat happier ending by letting Dr. Frankenstein and his wife um, survived the big blast at the very end. Um, so they, sh they shot a little moment with the two of them standing away from the ruins as it's all, you know, the explosion has happened and, and we know that they're going to be okay. What's, what's strange about that for me is that Dr. Frankenstein is really the villain. So you're basically saving the villain. Um, but also in the they couldn't afford to reshoot the interior explosion that happens in the laboratory. And if you look closely, as the 
as everything is tumbling down after the creature pulls the lever and there's the explosion, you will see Dr. Frankenstein still in the laboratory. <laughs> now, Sam, what it is, he's so fast. He ran out. That, that was the ghost image. Yeah. You know, it, it hadn't faded away yet. So that's, that's yeah. what you're seeing. It's, yeah. He didn't yeah. know he had a special a, power. It was a Warner, Warner Brothers cartoon, and he was like, <laughs> And it was like, and it disappeared as the rubble came down. Yeah. But you went exactly where I was going to talk about with the cinematography and James Whale with the bodies, like the people in the little jars, how James Whale had these great ideas and visions. Yep. And with sheer luck and well, or luck or just knowing who to get put with, he got right, right the best cinematographer he could to make that happen. Yes. Virtually simply. It's just like the Invisible Man. It's like things are just – you look at it now, it's like how did they do that? And people try to replicate it years later – and you can see all the seams, and this is in the mid 1930s. Yes. And of course, the Visible Man was earlier. And it's people think, oh, they didn't have the technology back then. They had things. They had moves. They knew how to use that camera. And Whale was one of the innovators. I've noticed of all his films of how he keeps pushing boundaries and pushing boundaries. And um, had and luckily it was been matched with great cinematographers. I know when later later in this retrospective, I already did this episode showboat with the virtually 360 degree yes um scene with old man river it's it's just and the way the editing it's just amazing like you'll love it when you get to that uh, episode but his editing skills yes. were bar none no there it, it just he he amazes me on every level and and he, he didn't want to do bride of frankenstein he, they actually had to talk him into it and he resisted it for several years until he finally agreed but you know he didn't want to repeat himself and that's the main reason why he didn't want to do it and the studio pretty much wanted you know a, a, a just a rehash of the first one and he didn't want to do that at all and so he went to great lengths to make this so completely different than the first film and it couldn't be more different even the tone of it is different. Bride of Frankenstein is much, much more of a dark comedy, wicked sense of humor that that comes into this. Whereas the first one is much darker um, and and more much more serious. I mean, there's you know the occasional um, humorous bit, but nothing like Bride. I mean, it's just loaded with all sorts of of humor. It's loaded with you know, like those miniature, you know, um, creatures in the in those jars and things that are just like, wow, what what a bizarre tangent to go into, and and just all these different directions, um, and that was him just trying to make it different and trying to be creative, and um, and gosh, we got to talk about Elsa Lanchester and the and the bride, my lord, what an incredible casting that was and uh of course he knew her and her husband mm -hmm. charles lawton socially and and professionally and everything because charles lawton had been in the old dark house of course and they but, were in, in in london they were in the theater circuit the circuit together yes. so in, in my understanding charles lawton did his first film was the old dark house filmed wise it was yes. filmed in Canada, but didn't get released till second because of contractual obligations right exactly and 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 uh and whale wanted charles lawton to do a cameo 
in Bride of Frankenstein as the king of the of the little miniature people. And when you look at the actor that they chose to play the king, he looks just like Charles Lawton. <laughs> in fact, people, you know, have sort of mistaken it for Lawton and wonder, you know, is that really Lawton? But um, and I, I don't know why it didn't work out, but I, it was probably because he was busy elsewhere or, you know, whatever. But I'm sure he would have loved to have come and done it, especially because of his wife being in the film playing two characters, let's not forget. Yes, and Mary Shelley. Uh-huh. She, he uh, also plays Mary Shelley in this incredible prologue that just is, is amazing. And I, um, and, and by the way, she, in the end credits, she, in, in the credit list, she is, uh, Elsa Lanchester is credited as Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who, of course, uh, if you don't know, was obviously the author of Frankenstein. And then when it gets to the end of the list, it, it says the bride, and it has a question mark. <laughs> just, just like it did with Karloff in the original Frankenstein. Exactly. So it's, it's nice that he kept that consistent. Exactly. But it's also good that she got a credit in yeah, another it was part. Cool. It was cool that she at least got a credit for Mary Shelley. But I think it's what I love about it is, by having her as Mary Shelley, and being that this is Mary Shelley's work, yeah. it shows that dark side of her Yes. You know, say, okay, this is her, and you know, when she's creating this, telling the story or whatever, and now we're going to see the embodiment of the bride, which, of course, would have been, you know, in, in, according to James Whale, her. And the makeup that they had her do, I know it was Jack Pierce, but under heavy influence of James Whale, yes. about how they wanted to have it all look and, and all that stuff, is, well, let's put it this way, it's iconic. It is iconic. <laughs> and before we leave the question mark thing, I just wanted to throw in... That in my movie of Iris Haunted Hills, my little Easter egg to, to James Whale and, and the Frankensteins is that the in, El, Elvira, or rather Cassandra Peterson, plays a dual part in the movie. She plays Elvira, but she also plays the Richard O'Brien's uh, dead wife, and there's flashback scenes, and her name is Elura. And at the end of the movie... You know, we have Cassandra Peterson as Elvira, and then Elura with a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my little little homage. But anyway, going back to the makeup um, and the hair and everything for the bride, um, you know, th that image of her is one of the most iconic pop culture images of all time who does not know when when they see it that that's the bride of frankenstein and yet her screen time is less than five minutes it's i mean it just is unreal i can't think of another pop culture image of anything that has gotten so much um i mean it's just it's incredible to me now i you know there's a lot of controversy as to who was most responsible and all that kind of stuff I kind of feel like it was equal responsibility between James Whale and Jack Pierce and even Elsa Lanchester as to how the look came about and how her performance came about. Mm -hmm. And I just think it is absolutely incredible. Everything about it, the, the thought that went into it, it's just unbelievable to me. The the hair, we've never you know, we've never seen hair like that. They used like a chicken wire 
cage to to make the hair stand way up on end like as as though she had you know stuck her finger into a, in a socket <laughs> and been you know made her hair you know stand on end and she's got the white streaks that are that look like lightning bolts going up the sides of her head um the you know the scars from the from the surgeries on the neck but they're but they're not there's not as pronounced as the monster because she's quite beautiful um I also think that they've based it a bit on the bust of of Queen Nefertiti, the Egyptian queen who wore that headdress mm-hmm. that went way up. And uh, so that was an influence. Um, the hand motions, the body language. Yes, that and, and a lot of that. It was, part, it was between James Whale and Elsa Lanchester, but she, she based... The move, the those jerky head movements and all, on birds and her eye. She she ended up where when she would look at people like the monster or Doctor Frankenstein or Pretorius in the room, she would her eyes would not, the pupils would not slide over from one to the other. She kept her pupils dead center, which is the same, which is the same case with some birds, and she would jerk her head in order to see them, and the movements that that created were just so bizarre and strange and and freakish and very startling. The way it was just so kinetic and and weird, and then. The way that she screams is just so shrill and so horrifying when she sees the monster and, and screams. Again, this is a also a really sad moment because you want the monster to have this friend and this this mate and that's been made for him, and she immediately rejects him. And oh my God, he's been rejected by his creator and now he's being rejected by the bride i mean i as a little kid i was i was in tears i was really sad i'm like oh my god don't don't reject him but she obviously sort of has she she thinks that the doctor is more handsome and seems much more interested in him and uh and that's just a, a terrible thing because we've all been rejected by a girl that you know we wanted to date or you know whatever it is just oh my god it's just such a devastating feeling to have that rejection um but at any rate her especially when you have one literally tailor made for you yes exactly (laughs) from scratch (laughs) made to order um but but her just everything about her movements and the way that she chose that also when she hisses Elsa Lanchester's talked about that she based that on swans mm-hmm. and oh boy you know you look at if you go and look at footage of swans and hear that that noise you totally get that's what she was going for and my god it just that character in in four minutes and a few seconds it's just like whoa it absolutely blows me away every time I see it just blows me away and I mean, there's just nothing like it. And when they talk about, you know, remaking, you know, Bride of Frankenstein, they did a film called The Bride with Jennifer Beals. Um, I mean, even Jane Seymour and Frankenstein, The True Story, who's great and, and everything else, you know, they didn't, they didn't try to go there with this freakish sort of thing. 
And it just, I don't, you know, and I'm kind of glad they didn't or try to emulate it or try to, you know, do something like it because it's just so incredible. I just don't see how it could ever be as good. I really don't. It's just amazing. I agree with you because this is lightning in a bottle. Yeah. This is when you have the creative talent all hitting their A game, if you want to call it that, at the right time. Everybody working together in that effort to make it the best product they can. And James Whale literally just saying, you want me to do a sequel? I'm going to give you a sequel. Yes. And it's just, it's just like, I'm going to give you the, what do they, they call it now? When you, when you go against expectations of, um, yeah, I know what you mean. I can't think of the word either. I'm trying to think. It's it's like when you're going against expectations. Yeah. So it's just it's like subvert when you're subverting expectations. Yes. So yes. when people are expecting a sequel, and he's like, "I'm going to subvert it." This is this is people say oh something new. This has been done way back in the day, right. and he might not even been the first one. I'm just I'm just saying that this is when this comes out in 2022. This is going to be like 87 years ago. Yeah. And um, so I mean, it's 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 amazing how. And I like it that it's the same creative force that did both. That way it makes – I think it's different because you've got a different director come in and do that. Some people might be a little more annoyed where you have the same person. Yeah. It, 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 I think it holds a lot more true. No, but it's very is, true. But I want to ask you this question about that. There is some controversy. Karloff did not want the monster to speak. Yes. Where do you stand on that? Because, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how it would have been played if it would well, have been quiet. and this is yet another example of how James Whale wanted to take it to a new level. And I, I think it's, I thought it was a great idea. And, um, you know, I understand Karloff's point of view, and I understand other people might agree with that one. But... I think that he needed to progress, and I think he, the childlike aspects of him having sort of amnesia, I guess, the brain having amnesia, and um, it would it would start to develop, and like a child learning how to speak or whatever. And I just felt that all of those childlike qualities um, and the reawakening of this brain it made sense to progress the story and to do and to take us to new ground where we're just not repeating. So I, I was all for it. And I think, um, you know, I, it changed things a little bit. Karloff had, uh, he had a dental bridge in his mouth in the first that he had taken out in the first film, which made his, uh, particularly on one side of his cheek, made it really, really stick in and have this sort of hollow dimple mm -hmm. on his cheek. And in order to speak, he'd had to have that dental bridge in. So for Bride of Frankenstein, it's in. And so his cheeks are not as, as gaunt as they were in the first one. Um, and he and, and Karloff felt that that, you know, was not as good and I you know I can see that 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 gauntness is lost a wee bit but the creature looks very different in many ways I mean he had been burned in the first one so he had no longer has bangs anymore because yep. the hair has been burned off it's you know whenever you're looking at pictures of the of Karloff as the monster that's one of the dead giveaways that it's oh that's a picture from Bride because the the bangs are not there um and there's some famous test uh, photos of makeup and stuff that you know are even more different and everything. But um, 
But yeah, I thought that the speaking and keeping his his vocabulary and his ability to speak fairly rudimentary and I think and all I think that worked quite well. I, of course, in the book, <laughs> the, the, the creature it talks eloquently in and page after page after page of talking philosophy and uh, da 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 da. So it's certainly having the creature speak was not going against Mary Shelley in any way, shape, or form. So you can't, you certainly couldn't um, argue that. But it, um, for me, it worked to have him have him speak. I'm, I'm actually, to be honest with you, and this is going to sound, I mean, some people are going to freak. I'm not that big a fan of the book, to be honest with you. I think all of the, the great, it has fantastic ideas, and the great ideas of the book were, you know, were capitalized on by Whale and his, you know, and, the, and his collaborators writing the scripts. And it had been adapted into plays, and you know, the, when you when you think about the the quote unquote authorship of the screenplay of the original Frankenstein, I mean, there's so many people that really probably deserve credit that aren't even credited, and Robert Flory, and you know, we could go on for days talking about all of the the people involved in that. But I think they really took the 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 great ideas of the book and um, and and made it into something that would be cinema worthy. I, I don't think that the original book could ever successfully be faithfully made into a film. It's just, uh, it, it, it's just too much, it's the creature <laughs> talking philosophy for pages and pages and pages would not work, number one. Um, the, the episode of the blind hermit is actually in the original book. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's an entire backstory with him being a noble, a French nobleman in Paris and all of the trials and tribulations that he went through and he was actually crooked and he was, I got involved in, I don't know, some kind of money scheme and all these things. I'm like, oh my God, that whole subplot needs to be, you know, taken out. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything. And, uh, so you know that's cra that's a crazy tangent. The other thing about the book is that there they do Doctor Frankenstein does start to create a female mm -hmm. monster, and he gets another laboratory all stocked and ready to go, and they and he gets the the body parts and. He's all ready and then chickens out and gets cold feet and it doesn't happen. It's like it's like the biggest anticlimax in a classic novel in the history of literature. And it is such a mistake. And it just leaves you hanging of like, oh my God, how could they not go through with it? And so of course, James Whale, when he's gonna make this movie, which was originally called Return of Frankenstein, and maybe wasn't even going to have a bride, Whale was like, you know, he had to have had the same reaction I did when he read the novel, was, oh my God, how could they not have gone through with bringing the bride to fruition? And that's what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And to rectify that humongous mistake, 
and uh, and and he did in, in an incredible way. The, my only regret is that you know it's only four minutes. I would have loved to have had a wee bit more of her, but um, but it still doesn't hurt the film in any way for me. It's like you know I would have loved, yeah. Anyway, it's just you know it's just one of those things. And I, I well, I will say this. Just to time yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for. Yeah, that's true. It could have it could have not worked because 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 my fear has always been I always. You always want to pe- want pe- leave people wanting more. Yes, no, you're if, right. Because if you overstep, because it's a tight line, as you know, especially as a director and stuff, you want to go there leaving more, but you don't want to overstay. And and, and it's the hardest thing is yes. that editing of the picture, the scripts, and everything about how to hit that line. Yeah, because yeah. if people are saying, let's put it 87 years now, yeah, and the bride is still iconic only for four or five minutes of screen time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the Mr. Whale knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. No, I think so too. I really, I, I think you're absolutely right. But he, you know, in my opinion, you know, took the book, it took mm-hmm. that episode of the book to its proper fruition. Yeah, his logical conclusion. To and, a logical conclusion. And I agree with you on that. At the hundred percent, it's, it's, I can't imagine if, well, obviously, we wouldn't even call the Bride of Frankenstein if you didn't have a bride. I mean, yeah. you imagine, you really subvert expectations. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting when you talk about the title because, okay, the 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 monster technically is not called Frankenstein. It's really Doctor Frankenstein is Frankenstein. So when you say the Bride of Frankenstein, what you're really talking about is is Valerie Hobson or May Clark in the original film mm-hmm. as Elizabeth Frankenstein. She's the Bride of Frankenstein. Ah. But in in Bride, the, people will argue that in Bride of Frankenstein, in the prologue, Lord Byron says he he actually says something to the effect of Frankenstein and referring to the monster. I agree with that. Now, I'm going to give you my reason why. And I said this when I talked about Frankenstein with yeah. Rich and Jeff. When you, as a parent, mm-hmm. create life. Which is normally, you know, husband and a wife, whatever, you know, whatever you look at it, you know, back in that day, it would have been a traditional way. Yeah. The child usually takes the father's last name. Yes, this is true. So my theory's been that the, the, the Frankenstein monster is actually, last name is Frankenstein. Yes. <laughs> Was never given a first name in the movies. Yeah. So that's my argument that you can get away with saying calling a bride of Frankenstein because technically the monster is a Frankenstein. Yeah. No, you're uh-huh. absolutely right. And it's so blurred. And I think that by the time they got to 1935, so many people were just referring to Karloff as Frankenstein that, you know, that's obviously what they mean. They mean that it's the bride of the monster. Um, but it is interesting that it kind of can have a dual meaning for sure. Mm-hmm. And and ironically, on some of the posters and everything, they also have a picture of Valerie Hobson in this long white gown as though she's the bride. And, and okay, well, she is. <laughs> and interesting enough, you brought this up. They had a lot of the people re- come back from the original Frankenstein. And Mae Clark was supposed to come back as Elizabeth, what was ill. Yes. And so she got replaced. What would you think, how would you think it would be different if Mae Clark was able to reprised her role well it's interesting i've never thought about that so much um i think that may would have been really 
fine in it. Um, I, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't, I don't think that Elizabeth in either film is that iconic or that memorable, those performances. I don't think that the, the characters particularly stand out in a, in a way that like, you know, oh my God, I've got to see Bride of Frankenstein again to watch that performance of Valerie Hobson. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's what it's about. Yeah. And um, so I think they were able to get away with replacing uh, the character, you know, the Elizabeth with Valerie Hobson, because I don't think audience members were remembering Mae Clark all that indelibly that it was going to make that big a difference. They even have different hair color, and you don't really pay that much attention to it. They they show clips of the first Frankenstein <laughs> in the beginning, and there's even a couple of moments of I I think of May. I could be wrong, or at least seeing her from behind or something, and. And, you know, you don't even notice the difference of the hair color. I mean, that's just how, how little you're paying attention to those characters. And I agree. She's a, it's a supporting role. It's definitely. And, and for people, and the movies I've seen with her in, Waterloo Bridge. You must see Waterloo Bridge yes. to see Mae Clark really own a screen. Yeah. Now, she's great in that. No, she and, and both of them are fantastic actresses. Has, has, I'm not... Um, you know, throwing aspersions their way in any way, shape, or form. It's just that those characters are not as important mm -hmm. um, as as the others. And and just you know, when you think of the those films, you just think of you know, Colin Clive. My God, he's just so wild-eyed and and you know, verging on over the top. But he just is brilliant at it. And he all, you know, he had a big drinking problem. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, they could they could possibly have not brought him back for Bride because, from what I understand, his drinking problems mm -hmm. had gotten much worse by 1935. But you know, Whale knew it was going to be impossible to, or next to impossible to replace him. It just would have changed the whole tenor of the the whole thing. And um, so I'm glad they didn't. Um, another. Uh, By the way, speaking of common clouds, just for yeah, yeah, Journey's End. Yes, is my first. Uh, I got to view that and to see him because all I knew him from was Frankenstein. Yeah, really, that's all I knew. Frankenstein, the Frank, Bride of Frankenstein, just plain Frank, Doctor Frankenstein. When I watched him in Journey's End, it was a revelation because oh, yeah. it was just. It was, I, I take it you've seen it too. Yes. Oh yeah. And for and, and listeners, we did the review. It came out 2021. It's it's on YouTube. It's very hard to find anywhere else. Yeah. But it, they got a decent eh, copy on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. But it's it, but it, it he's he was a life that was tragically cut short because of his disease of alcohol. Yeah. And who knows what work he would have? Because everybody wanted to work with him. Yeah. No. He was he was really something, and it's just really sad that uh that his demons got the best of him, but um. Yeah, it, it, I, for me, I just, I just can't imagine replacing him. It would have been, it would have been just terrible. I'm so glad they didn't have to. Um, and then, as we talked about earlier, Dwight Fry comes back as a different character, <laughs> and uh, and of course Karloff is back. Is brilliant. I mean, just absolutely brilliant performance as the monster in in both of those films and Son of Frankenstein, but. 
somewhat to a lesser degree in Son of Frankenstein. They don't give him much to do in Son of Frankenstein, to be honest with you. And um, that always disappointed me a bit. I mean, Son of Frankenstein is really Lugosi's movie and Basil Rathbone's movie and um, Karloff, you know, really becomes a supporting player in that in that film. And I think that's one of the reasons why he just, you know, really was not interested in coming back again and again. One more actor I want to talk to you about. You know where I'm going. The Una O'Connor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, as, as we brought up in Invisible Man, this, it, it, this, there's never been such a polarizing figure in some of these movies. <laughs> and I... And I said with Invisible Man, she almost took me out of the picture because of her yes. screaming went to it just went to a different level. And yes. And in this one, well, there, there's still some screaming. I mean, if you if if it's toned down a little bit, she's great. Everything else she does is great. It's just yeah. that little bit to me. So I'm 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 kind of in the middle ground. I don't hate her. I don't love her, but I look at it as she what she, what she was given it and what she was told to do. I was, you know, I mean, obviously, Whale. If Whale didn't want her to do it, he would have told her. No, I want you to tone it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what, what's your opinion on the Uno O'Connor? Well, I, you know, I understand all points of view on it. I mean, you know, I can't argue that it's not over the top. It's so over the top. It's in it's in orbit. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's no question. I find it amusing and silly and fun. I, I mean, she's just so such a character. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, I, I don't object to it. It's definitely in its own universe. It's definitely can take you out of the film, and especially if you don't like it or, or don't like it. I, I can see it being quite annoying and grating and all of those things. Um, but I just find it really fun. And, you know, it's an older style of the, the way things were done back then. You know, there, there was that the whole term of comic relief characters that they had back then. Um, we don't have those so much anymore. But there were times, you know, when you look at even in silent films, when the acting styles were very, very over the top, she's sort of coming out of that style a bit and there were just were films where where the there were there were these comic relief characters and so it was totally acceptable to audiences back mm -hmm. then whereas now it seems very antiquated and an odd ball and strange because it is such a different tone but um but i look at it as as you know this sort of nostalgic sort of antique way in which they you know in in which they dramatize things and i you know you look at you look at all you know all of films from the 30s and and 40s i mean there was still comic relief stuff going on in the 60s and 70s even in Frankenstein the True Story which was made in 1973 they have Margaret Layton showing up at the ball in a in a little bow peep outfit because she mistakenly thought it was a costume ball i mean that's a classic comic relief moment that i don't think you could necessarily get away with as easily nowadays in you know in a Frankenstein film it's just you know silliness and by the way in Frankenstein the True Story the the landlady played by Agnes Moorhead mm -hmm. 
she based her performance on you know o'connor as a as an homage to whale and um and uses the accent of you know o'connor and you know it it and she does a great job of it and oh. she actually knew her and and they were even in a film together i forget the name of it but they you know they knew each other i love agnes moorhead and but i will say for uno o'connor my favorite role of hers my favorite film of hers yeah i've seen her acting the adventures of robin hood yeah yeah, yeah. Where, where you know she's in that and i just i love everything she does in that i yes. mean so so i'm not saying i don't I'm not saying I don't like her. Or not. It's, just, it's just everything has certain parts. And, and most of the role I love her in, in this movie, it's just, there's just like this spots. And that, that happens. It's a, it's a personal preference. I'm so I'm, I kind of put myself in the middle ground. I don't hate her. I don't love her. There's just a couple spots where I'm just yeah. like, eh. Yeah, you know, it you, would have been nice you if hit they Mars, said, you know. You hit Mars <laughs> and you should have stopped at the moon. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> No, I know. I totally, I totally know what you mean. And yeah, some of her screams and and yeah, it it can get a little grating. I will, I will concede. <laughs> and now, I think we talked a lot about the movie. What I want to talk to you now about because I'm not sure if you'll be. I don't think you'll be able to participate in the retrospective series because your film schedule is gone is crazy. Yes. we talked about that off mic. What do you think of Whale's legacy? His impact on the horror genre, the but films in general, back then and today. If you want to talk about, because I know personally it affects you, but I mean other filmmakers too. Because he really, to me, things that he set up with Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, Invisible, Man, set the template up for horror that's still going on currently. Oh, Showboat yeah. with musicals, the way it could be filmed. Yes. with camera work and and so on journey's end how to take a play moving in waterloo bridge how to take these post-war world war one atmospheres or you know and put these wars into that um setting yeah what do you think well it's it, everything that you just mentioned i mean there i i don't think there could be a a more influential director who gets less cred for the things that he innovated and the things that he did to create entire genres. I mean, my God, the, the horror genre was almost single-handedly created by him. I mean, I, you know, again, I'm going to make some people really pissed off, but you compare Frankenstein to Dracula, which are the two, you know, big groundbreaking universal horror movies of 1931 that really set the set the whole genre i mean there's just no comparison as far as the filmmaking prowess of of todd browning versus james whale sorry for the browning fans out there but dracula is a stage play and is shot like a stage play mm. and couldn't be more boring all you have to do is look at the spanish version that they shot late at night and see how that director made it so much more visually interesting and you know so uh you know i just i i just find it you know very stagey um i as i said i think lugosi's greatest performance is igor i i don't find his dracula all that compelling for me um I find him more compelling as Dracula in in Abbott and Costello <laughs> meet Frankenstein, <laughs> to be honest. Um, 
So, yeah. Uh, so I know I'm going to have a lot of people jumping down my throat on, on the anathema that I have just sort of revealed about my you could direct all, you could direct all those, those those comments directly to his facebook page sam irvin yes. <laughs> <laughs> no no i'm gonna take it i'm actually gonna back you up in in a lot of aspects um bella lugosi's dracula to me is an iconic portrayal when we think of dracula yes. we all oh, think it's of iconic him. but i have trouble re-watching the movie because it is a play it's it, it's just shot for as a film as a thing of film it's just doesn't draw me in yeah it's i just, don't feel it's, like it's a it's a compared it's a, to frankenstein frankenstein yeah. is just a revelation that i can watch multiple times yes. and always learn something new with dracula it's where i said a great film you you can watch over and over again and learn new things with dracula it's it's a film where i i'm the more often i watch it the more i notice flaws to yeah. me yeah and but i'm not gonna but i know listeners like I said, everybody has a different perspective. This is just our opinion. Yours is perfectly right for you, you know, yeah, and I, yeah. I, you're entitled to yours. Just please, you know, understand everybody's entitled to like different things. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, and anyway, we won't dwell on Lugosi. I mean, I think he, he was, he was, there were fantastic, iconic moments of, of him just visually as Dracula. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's always going to come to mind. But, you know, in my, for my taste, I always loved Christopher Lee in the Hammer film Dracula's, you know. So, um, and I felt like he, you know, it, it's hard. I mean, when you think of, like, Karloff as the monster, you know, there's it, there's not too many people you can say have equaled or topped that. I, and, and whereas there have been other people who have played Dracula and done pretty damn good. <laughs> oh, yes. And now it gets back on top topic with the james whale legacy yeah so what films do you think nowadays that are coming out you could see you can see a direct lineage well from that or, or that came out in the past well i think you know gosh that's a really tough question but I, well that's what i'm asking you yeah yeah <laughs> you can handle, you're sam the man thanks. irving you thanks. can handle these tough ones i'm buying you some time <laughs> yeah uh, I'm going to deflect that for a second and bring up another film that I was involved in because, you know, this is all about me. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I co-executive produced a movie called Gods and Monsters that starred Sir Ian McKellen as James Whale. And we got to do a flashback sequence on the set of, uh, on the laboratory um setting of Bride of Frankenstein and we recreated that laboratory set and we not only recreated it almost as identically as we could possibly get it but we found the original Kenestrick Fadden electrical equipment that had been used in the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein to use a set dressing so it's authentic and it was of course later used by Mel Brooks in Young Frankenstein and um <laughs> I hate to mention it, but also a really cheesy film called Dracula versus Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, I knew you had to go there. I was looking at you I was like, yeah, are you going to bring it up? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I do yes, enjoy that film, but it's it's kind of it's, it's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> it's a guilty pleasure. It's a guilty pleasure. But um, but that I mean, just being involved in that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It was just the most incredible um, movie to work on. 
and and to be able to be a part of of recreating that that laboratory scene and um, and to you know just the whole film. I mean, it was amazing. And it, Bill Condon did an amazing job of directing it and adapting the screenplay based on the book Father of Frankenstein by Chris Bram. And Bill won the Oscar for best screenplay. So it's not just my opinion, but a few others as well. <laughs> but um, that you know, I would say that James Whale certainly influenced that movie. <laughs> um, I, you know. Horror films, the whole horror genre has evolved and changed so much in recent, you know, decades that it's hard to say, you know, oh, this film really reminds me of Bride of Frankenstein because we, you know, films like that just aren't being made nowadays. But in terms of the, what he, the iconic things that he pioneered in terms of just marrying the German expressionism and bringing in and creating these indelible monster images. I mean, every monster that's ever created, every villain that's ever created, the makeup artists all were trained and brought up on the Frankenstein monster. I mean, everybody, anybody in makeup design has always, you know, they've always done their own Frankenstein monster. Every every sculptor in the world who's a, a fan of horror has to do a sculpture of the Frankenstein monster. I mean, it's just, it's got to be the most, I mean, it has to be replicated in, in, in just trillions of ways. So so anytime someone is trying to, re, to create an, an unusual outsider, freakish looking being, they've got to have that in mind. I mean, it just consciously subconsciously whatever and their hopes are that they're going to be able to come up with a design that is as memorable as as Karloff or Elsa Lanchester as the bride or whatever and very few do <laughs> make it that iconic but they're all trying to I mean that is just the pinnacle of of what anyone is 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 reaching for and now to move in from the horror genre for a little bit yeah look at a different thing the, the cinematography that he helped get, like we mentioned with Showboat, yeah. and we mentioned with a lot of these, The Invisible Man, a lot of these other films, that he was able to push those boundaries oh, yeah. and to get those things in. And showing people doing it, how do you think that part is still being impacted by cinematographers and directors from yeah, that point I mean, on? Because, I mean, he really, I just want to get the audience number, he wasn't just hard, like this whole retrospective we're learning, dramas, comedies the great garrick for example um, yes musicals there's not many directors today that could do all this i think spielberg he's doing west side story it's coming out it came out in 2021 i mean you talk about that's, that's relatively the same kind of tower where he could take those different things all these different works and right. bring them to vision but whale did this all within like a 10-year period yeah no <laughs> it's it, it it is amazing and he you know he just he he was working on all cylinders, like you say. I mean, visually, his films are so interesting. The, the casting, the, the the way that the, you know, the sets and the costumes, just everything was so, just deliciously thought out and and put together that, I just marvel at 
it feels like every frame is iconic and every it's like a, a master painting you know and he moved the camera and he did you know unusual things that that just weren't everyday uh things that you would see in movies back then and the effects that we talked about and just always like you said pushing the boundaries and he didn't like we talked about, he didn't want to repeat himself and he didn't want to just be stuck in the horror genre. He wanted to do all of these different things and he did. And he didn't get remembered for it as much because the horror things were were so successful and have stood the test of time and been so iconic all these years that that's what we remember him most for. But um, I'm glad you're doing this series because, you know, it, it is important for people to know about Showboat and all these other great things that he did. Um, so I don't know that that completely answers the question of, of really saying specific moments in current films that, oh, that's a James Whale moment. But for me, it's just, you know, he he is the father of, of our films and, and any 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 creature feature is going to have, you know, the people are thinking about whale. I mean, my God, you, you talk to uh, Del Toro and all he'll talk about, you know, Shape of Water is how much he is influenced by Frankenstein and, and you know, it's just, you know, whale influences and in, informs just about everything that Guillermo does. So, I mean, that's certainly one example. And then, you know, Tim Burton. I mean, you can go down the list of, of all these directors who are constantly having, um, you know, little homages and different things to, to Whale, for sure. And I think his legacy is going to live on throughout film because you look at it, Whale begot, you know, other filmmakers to follow his type of thing with his influence. Yes, and then other filmmakers are going to see those filmmakers, Del Toro, yep. Burden, and they're going to, and that's going to continue on, and it's all going to be tied back, yeah, to one man. And I find that just fascinating with this this retrospective, this legacy yeah. of one man's vision and how it's just pushed on into the future. And before we end the episode, um, Sam, is there anything that you wanted to talk about besides, like uh, you talked about Alvira? movie coming out Blu-ray. but you also did an article recently um trying to think what magazine you put it in it's um it was on your facebook page uh, are we, are we, an article about was i'm trying to read frankenstein the true story not very well we can go that way but didn't you do one recently that was um was it like did you interview Alvira? Yes, yes. That's what I was trying to remember. Oh, okay, good. Yes, I was I, trying to keep. I was trying to keep it on theme. But. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I did a huge uh, interview with Elvira that's in the new issue of the of the Dark Side, which is the UK, the great UK horror magazine. They have the most readership of any horror magazine in the world, by the way. They're a monthly. And this was issue uh, two twenty two that came out. Well, that's in, an easy to remember. Yes, <laughs> and uh, it came out in October of twenty twenty one. You can get the back issue now that you're listening to this a little bit later. And um, it's a ten thousand word interview. We spend half of it talking about the making of Elvira's Haunted Hills, and then the other half, I asked her questions that she'd never been asked about. You know, meeting 
I, I wanted to know who of all the horror stars you know she met and and to talk about that and of course she's talked about Vincent Price quite a bit we we went there but we talk about her you know crossing paths and working with John Carradine I asked her about Barbara Steele I asked her about Christopher Lee she talks about the time she met him by accident um, she talks about you know Martine Beswick I mean you know so this is really for us fan boys, you know. It's like the the questions that us fan boys want to know. So it's it's a really cool interview. And for those knowing, Alvira and Vincent Price really got along great. The Vincent Price family, Victoria Price, yes, they did a comic book, yes, with the two of those characters together. Yes, Alvira versus Vincent Price. There are four issues of that comic book, and it's fantastic. It's just like the greatest thing. And Victoria Price, Vincent's daughter. A wonderful woman. She, uh, she, you know, gave permission for this to happen, and uh, they're they're really cool issues. You got to grab those. Yeah, grab them before they're gone, and then and hard to find because these things when they disappear, yes. they get on so the market just goes up. And you're talking about two iconic names yes, exactly. on the cover. So it's it, <laughs> and they have multiple covers for each issue. So it's like, <laughs> oh my god, alternate versions. <laughs> Yeah, comic books know how to get you with the multiple cover thing if, if you want to be the full completist. Yes. Uh, sure. and that kind of thing. But, Sam, I think we've reached the end of our journey <laughs> with the bride. What? Of, I know. <laughs> you had me on for three hours last time. We're cutting this off after, you know, an hour and ten minutes? Jeez. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it was three and a half hours, but it was just... <laughs> But that was bladder busting. <laughs> but but listeners, you know, um, Sam, thank you again for joining me. And I'm glad that we got to do this in person because it's not often I get to have the, uh, the people we're doing this like in the same room with each other on it's the mics. It's great. It's a, it's, a, it's a great, great pleasure. Love it. And listeners, um, thanks again for tuning in to this continuation of the James Earl Retrospective. We have a few more episodes to go, a couple of more movies left in the can. And um, I want to thank you all for listening in. Stay tuned for the next episode. We'll either be a movie decided by the roll of a die, an interview, or the continuation of the James Whale retrospective. As always, stay safe. Do something fun. Watch Elvira movies. Yeah. Hello, everybody. And thank you again for listening to the Bride of the Frankenstein episode with Sam and I. Uh, just before I play Sam's movie trailer for Avira's Haunted Hills, I just want to let everybody know that the next episode will be coming out on February 13th or the 14th. It's going to be my interview with the wonderful character actor, Nehemiah Persoff. And for those unfamiliar with the name, look him up on IMDb. He's been an actor for over 55 years. He's been on various movies like Yentl, On the Waterfront, The Comocheros, also in stage. We have some wonderful stories that he brings up about Charles Lawton, Boris Karloff, and so on. He's lived an incredible life. He's 102 years old, sharp as a tack. Um, he's also a painter, and he's recently written his autobiography, The Many Faces of Nehemiah. So I hope you enjoy it. join us next week for the 90-minute interview with Mr. Persoff. It is definitely worth it. One of my favorite interviews that I've done so far this year. And I hope everybody will come and take a listen. All right. Thank you again for listening. And now on to the trailer. You won't be able to move. You won't be able to scream. You 
won't be able to take your eyes off of. Elvira's Haunted Hills. Allow me to present Elvira. Yeah, nice meeting you too. Elvira. Entertainer extraordinaire. See, Elvira stretch herself as an actress in her most challenging role. I just love butterflies ever so much. Richard O'Brien in his most horrifying performance since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, why? Why? What are you going for, an Oscar? A film that is so steamy. Oh, Lord have mercy. So shocking. That's another unfortunate Elzebeth's family trait. Catalepsy. Fear of cats? You'll scream. Yes, Johan! You'll gasp. You'll die laughing. Damn, hate when that happens. From the masterfully macabre mind of Elvira. Right, like there's something going on in my mind. Elvira's haunted hills. The village people say this castle is evil. Yeah, who listens to the village people anymore? 